Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement with progress. We live in a paradoxical time where we have more comfort but less peace, more connectivity but less connection, more information but less wisdom. The purpose of this podcast is to explore these natural tensions with independent voices who will push our thinking. This is the Paradox Podcast. So it took me getting good enough at it to know how good at it I was not. It took me getting just good enough at it to know I'm not good at it at all. You can learn quite a lot from experience. That's one thing. There's something after that. Have you the will and determination to do anything about it? Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Paradox Podcast. I'm your co-host Kyle Tibbetts, joined by my fellow co-host Alex Kahn. For episode number three, we met up with James Bashera at his house in San Francisco. James is a modern-day Renaissance man, an entrepreneur, angel investor, podcaster, author, musician. He's a prolific creator who operates with passion, and he's probably one of the most honest entrepreneurs I've ever met. James founded three startups, including Tilt, which was acquired by Airbnb in 2017, where he became global head of Airbnb Music. James has angel invested in dozens of startups like Gusto, Mercury Bank, Halo Top Ice Cream, Bolt, and many others, including several multi-billion dollar companies and is now a full-time angel investor. This year, he launched the Below the Line podcast, which is without any exaggeration, my favorite new podcast of 2019. James is an advocate for mental health, a lover of philosophy, and someone who's always willing to help. He's personally been very helpful in the launching of the Paradox podcast, and now he's our third guest. James has a book coming out next month called Beyond Coffee, which you can check out at beyondcoffeebook.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at James Bashera. Before we dive into this exciting episode, wanted to give some context on how the Paradox podcast came to be. So Alex and I go way back. We actually met at age 16 working as congressional pages in the U.S. House of Representatives and have been great friends ever since. A little background about me, I've worked in Silicon Valley for over 10 years doing marketing for a number of different startups. I'm a husband and a father to a one-year-old daughter and family is super important to me. There are really two reasons why I wanted to start this podcast. First, Alex and I have been talking about how society has become this place where there's certain things you can't really say, there's certain people you're not supposed to talk to, there's certain ideas you can't fully debate, and we think that's fundamentally wrong. We strongly believe in the marketplace of ideas and want this to be a space where we explore a wide range of perspectives. Second, we live in this paradoxical, somewhat strange time where, for example, we have huge amounts of abundance in certain areas of life, and that actually leads to scarcity in directly related aspects of our lives. And we wanna go deep on those topics when we can. Ultimately, we want this podcast to be a series of conversations with bold, independent thinkers who will really open our minds and expand the way we think and hopefully do the same for anyone listening. Alex, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, everyone. My name is Alex Kahn. I currently work in the California State Legislature. I'm focused on healthcare policy. A little bit of background. I'm an attorney and I've worked in politics pretty much since I was uh, eight years old. One of the reasons I really wanted to do this with Kyle is over the 16 or so years that we've known each other, we've always been able to disagree in a, in a friendly way. And recently we were talking about how that's kind of missing in our society. And we realize more and more people are 
are forming tribes of folks who are like-minded, who agree with them, not really challenging their own beliefs. And so what we're really setting out to do is have conversations with extraordinary folks from all different fields who will hopefully expand the way we think, expand our point of view, and maybe have that impact on our audience as well. Now that we've got intros out of the way, let's jump right into today's conversation with James Bashera. We hope you enjoy the episode. James, thanks for carving out time on your Saturday of all days to have us over. This is uh, extremely generous of you, so thank you for of, of course joining thank the you, Paradox Kyle, Podcast, Alex. Thank you for uh, for the invite. I told you this as we were walking up, but uh, really love what uh, what you're doing with Paradox Podcast and y'all's angle. It's actually my preferred type of podcast where you go into these really dark corners of topics that just you don't go into in a business podcast or you don't go into in a, uh, I don't know, a, a true crime podcast or yeah. something like that. Yeah. I think there's inherent tension there between going a little bit deeper into one area and having a little more of a clear target and we're a little bit broader. So that's that's a bit of a challenge, but we'll kind of iterate as, as we go, as you do with any sort of a project. Right. When we grow up, we want to be below the line, but <laughs> it's <laughs> well, fun. That is super kind, and I think you guys are well on your way there. And for listeners, Kyle sent me the, the premise for Paradox podcast uh, maybe one or two months ago. And I love that it married a couple different subjects together in one podcast because life is not these like bifurcated silos subjects. Yep. Uh, that don't interact with each other. Life is obviously, it is the interweaving of all of these things. Right. And, and I love that, uh, that your podcast is built to do that from the get-go. Well, thank you. So one thing I really love about your podcast, and we won't spend the whole episode talking about podcasts. You know, I, I, I love not only, obviously, uh, listening to podcasts, I uh, love creating podcasts, but I just think it's so wildly under-discussed how crazy of a medium this is. It's like, crazy. It blows talk, my mind. We talked about new media for a long time, and it was like, oh, new media is coming. And now its moment really has arrived. Yeah. Um, I mean, you have the big podcast, you have Joe Rogan, you have all that type of stuff, but it's the long or the fat tail of podcast creators that are creating all these different pieces of content. I think, like you said in your thread, I think the way that we learn, the way that we process the world's events, the way that we think through issues... We'll, we'll probably more likely in the future to be doing that with a podcast to process uh, what's going on. And so I think we are early too. I don't think we're anywhere near the peak. And I think that it's going to keep going for a little while. And it's exciting to be a small part of it for sure. I remember um, thinking Amazon was still just getting going 14 or 15 years in when, when I realized my parents didn't really use it in 2010, 11. They'd never really used Amazon. I was like, man. This is still just beginning. The fact that you have these major consumer classes that still don't use this thing, yeah. and um, and I made a prediction that it was gonna it was gonna double in in uh, in market cap in eighteen months. And you know, this is a fourteen year old company doubling in market cap in eighteen months is would have been um, pretty pretty crazy. But I thought it was what was going to happen, and uh, and uh, looked at at buying. Uh, options in the, the company and didn't know what I was doing, never really bought stocks, couldn't buy it because um, I think the furthest out I could buy it was like 15 months. Yeah. I was like, okay, that's way too aggressive. I'm already being kind of uh, <laughs> stupidly aggressive. There's no way it'd be 15 months. And uh, and if people want to look it up, yeah, it's 2012. You can even see this on Facebook. I was writing about it for months. I was like, this is just getting going. And, um, and it was 19 months. There you go. And doubled in, uh, in, in market cap. I've been wrong so many times on things, but I felt really strongly about that. I also feel like I mean, equally my parents 
just discovered podcast because of mine. Mm-hmm. If it weren't for mine, they wouldn't have wouldn't have discovered them. And it's uh, I think it is just getting going. And probably the biggest sign um, for me personally is about a month or two ago. I swear I love music, but I think podcasts are my favorite medium over uh, yeah, me too. Over even music. I think one of the things I probably love the most about your podcast is sort of the refreshing level of honesty. I feel like one of the more positive trends in Silicon Valley I've noticed, and hopefully you've noticed it in the last maybe three to five years, is a lot more openness about the real side of building a company, not just kind of the, you use the phrase above the line, the kind of PR approved version. And I, I guess I'm curious, has that sort of level of honesty been something that has always been a value or is it something that you kind of came into through the process of learning about building a company? Where did that honesty come from and why did it become such a core part of kind of who you are and, and certainly what your, your show's about? You know, I, um, I was just telling a friend yesterday, another founder friend, and he was asking for advice on stress mitigation. And, and so I said a lot of the stock answers um, of practice the art of undercommitting, like we're especially founders, very optimistic and, and how much time they really have and what they can get done. So practice the art of undercommitting. Um, a meditation practice is, I mean, the research just keeps coming out of mm-hmm. the effectiveness of, of meditation practices. Um, blocking off time to think uh, was the third thing. And the fourth thing I said, it per- perhaps the most helpful thing um, you can do for reducing stress is being honest. And, um, and I was writing the email really fast, sent it off to him, and he replied. He was like, it's so funny you said that. It's someone just recommended Lying by Sam Harris, um, a book about honesty. And I had read that book years ago. And um, that was one of a few different inflection points where I was like, okay, the key is so simple. It's what we've been told since <laughs> we were three, four, five, six years old. Um, be honest everywhere you go. Honesty uh, really is the best policy. It, re- it really is. And I think for my 20s, I, don't, uh, I did not um, believe it was the best policy. I thought it was one of, one of seven, one of, <laughs> one of 14 different policies, and, sure. it's, and it's helpful. But had, um, I think over the last four or five years, more and more appreciation for just how powerful being, being honest is. And I think what I think about when I say uh, honesty being so powerful, it's not... Obviously, you know, we should avoid mistruths because that's, it gets you into, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of the above the line view on honesty is avoid mistruths because it gets you into hot water. Mm-hmm. It erodes, um, you know, reliability, it erodes um, trust, reputation, the Warren Buffett style, you know, 20 years to build trust, uh, a nanosecond to lose it. Yeah. There is that above the line version, but then there's the below the line. I think 90% of the value of being honest is that elicits the right circumstance, the right scenario, the right stimuli for the right response for what you need from someone, what you could use from someone and that's that's the real intention behind honesty with uh with below the line is i realized when i was really honest about what i was going through oh my god it was just it was you know nature abhors a vacuum and it was a very similar type of uh type of response where i would just say what i was going through and then solutions comfort empathy uh you know, multiple heads working on the same problem just would manifest out of uh, thin air just by being honest about what you're going through. And I was not that way in the first, probably 90% of, of 
Tilt, a company that I uh, built and and um, my first kind of major ambitious uh, entrepreneurial project. Ninety percent of the time, it wasn't that I was going around lying, but I certainly was keeping it close to my vest. Mm-hmm. Of uh, someone asking me, you know, how's X, Y, or Z going? And, sure, crushing it. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds kind of like. Uh, most of what you're talking about is being honest with yourself. I mean, when we're told, you know, always tell the truth as kids, that's, you know, tell your parents the truth, tell your teachers the truth. But meditation is really just about reality, getting rid of the the bullshit, right? And and really coming to grips with Awareness, what's around right. you. Um, the other thing you mentioned, uh, under committing. Well, over committing is just lying to yourself, right? That you can do more than you probably can. So, right. I mean, this is kind of an internal and an external uh, thing it sounds like it really is it's uh you know just having a clear lens on the world and yourself it's um it is i mean you you wouldn't purposely add dirt to the windshield um mm-hmm. and and i think that's what we do when when we are yeah lying to ourselves or or lying to to others um you're just adding so much shit yeah. In the way of you being able to see the world and then being able to see you. Absolutely. Yeah, you're almost each time you're you're doing it, you're almost forking off a whole new reality that you have to right. maintain and you have to remember what did I say here, what did I say there? And the cognitive load and again the stress, the anxiety, the all that stuff um comes crashing down on you because there's no way a human's not designed to do that. No. Um, it's not a multi processing computer, right? And, so and we're not even designed to work individually. We're designed yep. to work socially. And when you when you are uh and I just learned this just late in my entrepreneurial career. I've been doing startup stuff for for uh twelve years now and and you know it took me seven, eight, nine years to realize just being honest about the situation invites that social help, that mm-hmm. social um, coordination to find the best answer. And also, Justin Kahn on, on one of uh, uh, the earliest episodes um, talked about it a little bit in the episode, and he talks about it on, on Twitter, just share the burden. And this is something I think he similarly um just learned later in his entrepreneurial career to where it's like, don't try to keep it all contained uh, when you really can lean on your team. People want to help when invited and you can really lean on your team to share the burden of whatever you're going through or whatever you know, massive challenge there is. I think, and this is just where the thought always goes, is whatever I'm doing that is self-sabotaging, it's usually related to an insecurity and i think early in my entrepreneurial career i wanted to do whatever was superhuman whatever was some feat that it would be very clear james went out and did that mm-hmm. because i was so insecure of you know am i providing value am i really you know the leader of this incredibly smart team everyone's doing so many great things around me let me go show that i can do these great things and and that's just uh you know that's a never ending like never a hero ends. complex and yeah. you just you resort to doing things that are that are not sustainable which is problematic for right. sure right right it's exactly a hero uh complex and it's just uh and that i think you know probably comes from these stories we're told where yeah. it's this individual figure that yeah. that goes and uh you know captures the treasure and and it's just in life it is never ever an individual figure totally
So you talked, uh, in I think, in the intro episode about being raised Catholic and kind of that Western philosophy tradition, but how you've gravitated more and more to kind of Eastern philosophy. Will you go into that a little bit and maybe talk about either the contrast there or how they might actually work together? Yeah, sure. It's a, it's, um, I always, it's a paradox, you might say. Yes, that is. It's very paradoxical. Um, and like any paradox, you, I don't know, it just feels natural, actually, um, when you get down, down to it. Um, so I grew up Catholic, like Alex mentioned. And, um, but when I was eight, uh, my dad took me to a transcendental meditation class and, and would have books on Buddhism around the house. And I mean, in 1980s and 90s, Dallas, Texas, it was an eccentric thing <laughs> not, to not do. Not the hotbed of no, not the hot bed. <laughs> yoga and meditation. No, especially and- our, our you know, uh, Bible Belt uh, neighborhood. Hmm. And, um, and it was this funny, and he was so comfortable being kind of just different and it's just, he felt so much benefit from meditation. And I remember we had this book on, uh, the Buddhism of Christianity and, and it's so to answer your question, I think there's quite a lot of, of overlap. And, uh, if you take kind of the traditionalism out and you just go to the four gospels that you could just view as, you know, historical documents, I mean, it, Christianity was the most Eastern thing in the Roman Empire at the time. So it quite literally was an Eastern um, philosophy back then. And the idea of a union with God, of God coming down, being on the same plane as us, um, and and imploring us to be on the same plane as, you know, capital H, him. It, it is very Eastern, far more Eastern than, you know, Roman or Greco polytheism. So um, it felt like complete contrast at the time. You know, when I was a teenager or when my friends would be like, why is your dad always nap at 2 p.m. Uh, <laughs> outside? And and um, had to tell him, he's not napping, he's doing this other weird thing. But the fast forward to my 20s, I really just took to the practice of meditation. And it was just uh, the practice of meditation that I really loved. And then I, I became pretty fascinated with the philosophies. Uh, not necessarily the, the R word in Silicon Valley religion, Uh People avoid it at all costs. In Eastern philosophies in general, they're much more like psychotherapies than religions. And they are not shoulds and shouldn'ts um, as much as they are, hey, avoid self-sabotage by practicing this or practicing that. It's not do this to make some deity proud or, um, uh, or avoid you know, some um, hellish fire. And when I started to really look at it beyond just the practice of uh, mindfulness or meditation in the mornings from, from what I had learned you know, early in my childhood, what, what I think I developed an appreciation for was the psychotherapy with, within Buddhism or um, you know, Zen Buddhism all the way to Hinduism or my favorite Eastern philosophy is actually a, a philosophy called Vedanta that mm. is more or less the underpinning. So. Um, they say Buddhism is is Hinduism made for export. It was simplified as it went from India to to China, um, and so underpinning Buddhism you have Hinduism, and underpinning Hinduism you have Vedanta, and and it really is just a philosophy on how to think and how to not engage in self sabotage. So that philosophy uh, or psychotherapy was really therapeutic when I was going through really really stressful times in building a company uh-huh. and uh and i just developed a i think a psychotherapeutic uh, appreciation for it really neat my uh 
my dad did something very similar to what your dad did, but kind of the 2000s version and got me a online subscription to the Deepak Chopra, Oprah Winfrey meditation website. And so I've dabbled, but you know, as finally as kind of an adult and a little bit settled into my career, I keep thinking I want to revisit it more in earnest. And so that's really, really neat to hear your experience. Yeah. And in many ways, I think, um, we can completely oversimplify these things, but in many ways, I grew up with a version of religion which was um, do this to get X. Mm-hmm. And whether it was, you know, to get God's capital G grace or whether it was um, do this for, uh, for a place in this you know, paradise of heaven, it was do this to get X. And what I found very therapeutic, um, you know, psychotherapeutic about Eastern philosophy and, and specifically Vedanta, and, but you know, Zen Buddhism and and Hinduism have these to a to a certain degree is uh, just the pacification of my mind that is creating so many problems. So it's almost instead of do this to get X, it's hey try this out and see what happens. It's yep. much more kind it, of the why than the the what. It's you know? it's much more like yeah exactly. It's much more like try this out for your own pacification or just see what actually happens tomorrow mm-hmm. not see what happens in this judgment day that could be in uh 70 years or it could be yeah. in you know a thousand and uh i just found it's tighter uh development cycles it's yeah for sure sense. yeah it's interesting from my perspective i grew up in a christian household went to christian high school in southern california and i would say in my 20s i, I kind of largely walked away from at least the organized religion aspect of christianity i found myself getting into meditation not at any level uh, like you in terms of researching eastern philosophy but just becoming more interested in that school of thought and i think part of what was so surprising for me actually coming back to faith and Christianity more recently, maybe in the last three to five years, is how actually pretty compatible a lot of these things are. I sort of had in my mind this idea that, like you said, that religion sort of a set of rules and you're trying to attain some sort of an outcome that's distant in the future versus this thing that you can practice day to day and, and get better day by day. And so it's a little bit of a paradox for me that so much of what I thought was sort of true about Christianity, sort of with fresh 30-something-year-old eyes, uh, turned out to look quite different when I came back to it after getting oh, into meditation. Totally, after, totally. And we sort of like oddly unbundled and secularized all these things, whether it's fasting, whether it's meditation. These are all things that have deep religious roots in history right. um, that we're sort of seeking out some of us in a secular context, but they're, they're yeah, very like, highly so, compatible, so, which is sort of a, a weird realization that I had more recently. Right. Yeah. It's, it's actually, um, you know, in this, and it ties to both uh, traditions or, or philosophies. And I, you know, I still attend church every Sunday and, and really love our church that we attend here in San Francisco. And, and though it's a, uh, obviously, uh, one of the most countercultural or secular cities in America, it's far from the Bible belt phenomenal sermons each Sunday from uh, from my pastor I've had on on my podcast of just an incredibly talk about honest deep that was one of the most of, honest episodes I think I've ever heard of any podcast well that was a whole deeper it, level of honesty and he, yeah, he re- and it's and it's why he's been it's probably the fastest growing church in uh, in the west coast or the in the country because he knows his audience he knows it is yeah. a pretty intellectual skeptical uh mm-hmm. san francisco secular audience and and he just brings he brings the noise when it comes to the deep richness of a 
capital M mythical character in Jesus. Um, and it is so rich. I, so Alex, your question about Eastern philosophy, I love it for philosophy. I love it as guidance for, for avoiding self-sabotage. Um, and I love it as a psychotherapeutic um, rumination. But I, I'd say I have more appreciation now um, in my life in someone like Jesus, to your point, Kyle, mm-hmm. than, than I ever have because it is not the caricaturized version. Yeah, the cartoon version, but a much more 360-degree version of someone who was, talk about a paradox, fully God, fully man. I mean, right. wrap your head around that. I mean, it's so, uh, I love talking about this, um, but I'll keep it to, you know, 60 seconds, but it's, uh, it, it's talk about paradox. He's it, the best of us, the most perfect of us. And this is, this is not the, um, historicity of whether you think that there are miracles or not. Just think about it from the, uh, the mythology. And I mean this in a very respective mythology sense, but in that mythological sense, I mean, it really is the perfect ideal myth of the perfect person the most perfect character, God, comes down to be man who is perfect. Again, not the historicity, but just think about this as an abstract concept. Mm-hmm. A perfect character comes down who then is betrayed, tortured, killed for shit he never did. Yeah. And he literally is going through it all for us who we are betraying, torturing, and killing this character. And it's not this idea of a king that is the most ideal of what you would ever want from a king. So therefore, a selfless is, king, right? There, yeah. therefore, it is. Uh, it's the ideal for a king or for uh, for any one of us. And then you know, comes clean on the other side, having yep. you know saved us from what uh, what we have collectively you know caused in terms of of uh, self sabotage. So uh, that's so rich, and it's yeah. To your point, they make you read Great Gatsby in eighth grade, and yep. you don't appreciate that at all. Nope. You get to read it when you're. 25 and you're like holy shit this is really yeah really deep stuff this is is really deep thinking about right right it's the same for uh yeah christianity we can come back to this i think there's a lot of rich stuff here but just to switch gears a little bit it seems like you've always been super creative you make music you've built several companies uh you're making a podcast you just gave us your new awesome book beyond coffee have you always been creative and what are some of the earliest memories you have of maybe as a child creating things from scratch kind of going from from zero to one it's um i think like a lot of things in life and what we just touched on i think there was a thread of it early and then i moved away from it for for a little while and then came back to it so when i was young five six seven uh, i loved to draw and would always draw was entering different contests um i remember i won a contest to draw our little school uh um directory the cover for it for our elementary school and i thought it was so cool and then you know at eight nine ten um there was nothing specific but i remember being more and more encouraged into sports and into academics and and it probably hit me maybe only two years ago that i did not know a single artist growing up Hmm. um till i was maybe 25 or 26 this is not like I, I didn't like, like no I wasn't ever, friends. no personally. I, outside of the artists that you would read about in, yeah. a, in a book or that you'd hear people talk about, I did not know the concept of what an artist was. Like literally it was, you got Picasso, 
maybe some Mozart and Beethoven. I still am just so blown away by that. That uh, it's like my saddest fact of of growing up. I did not know um, a single you know real artist. Now kids in my class you know drew, but I had no uh, example in my head that you could pursue art, musician or you know painter uh, as a as a profession at all. And my wife is a, an artist. We met at 20, 24. So um, she didn't start pursuing it professionally until she was about 26. But um, but I think that started to awaken just my desire to create. And I was, I think, subconsciously just thought out of, especially in Dallas, Texas, um, or growing up there and, and thinking through, okay, lawyer, doctor, real estate, uh, oil and gas. Oil tycoon. Oil tycoon. Right. It's like, oh, entrepreneur. That's what I'll be. Sure. And I think I just only maybe two years ago put it together. I was like, oh, that's the professional artistic thing I can go and yeah. do. And um, and yeah, and it's the last 10 years or so uh, lean into entrepreneurial activities. But then uh, in the last few years, uh, maybe the last three, four, got uh, back into making music that I used to make when I was younger and, and a little bit in college. And then, uh, yeah, the podcast, I think it's my favorite creation to date. It's awesome. So the uh, the social network, the film in 2010 or so, kind of really popularized the idea of this founder CEO, made it really trendy and cool. But you've actually done it, unlike most people out there. What are some of the biggest misconceptions about what that's like, especially as it pertains to your experience building Tilt over five years or more, and then ultimately being acquired and and merging with Airbnb? Yeah, well, even the real version of that was, you know, we use the word acquired um, or entrepreneurial or, you know, being a founder. Mm -hmm. And we think we have this this image of what it is. The conception is that you own your destiny or you're your own boss or you uh, have freedom. And, and I know for me, that was my conception of it was it's freedom writ large. Like that's being an entrepreneur, you're your own boss. And that just is not my experience. It's never been my experience in creating any of these things. Um, and and you're always beholden to the audience, your customers, whoever you're communicating with, whoever you're creating for. With a company, you quickly learn within like, I don't know, after you buy two monitors at home and you set up your desk completely for the startup that you're going to build. And you're like, all right, I quit two weeks ago and now we're doing it for real. And you're, you know, setting up the LLC fast forward like three months and you realize, okay, no one is really digging what I, what I've created so far. And you realize it really is conversation and it's communication. And then if you're lucky enough to fast forward year, two, three years later and, and you have many customers, you're like, oh my God, I need to keep a conversation with 10,000 different customers going. And the product is never good enough. The, you know, the number of customers is never, never large enough. And so I uh, quickly learned it's just not, you know, instead of one boss, you have, I don't know, 70 employees that are bosses mm -hmm. or 10,000 customers that are bosses. You have a board, you have investors. You have a board, quite literally, yeah. I have yeah. three, four, five board members that are your bosses. And uh, the social network not only was a misconception or just a, it just was a, a false notion of entrepreneurship as, as a movie. I remember watching it too and being like, wow, that's freedom. Mm -hmm. Like, he's two years older than me. He must, you know, he must be on top of the world. Uh, even though obviously the, the movie is about him screwing people over and being alone right. and having this one character and, and 
uh the uh who played sean parker and it's um uh, justin timberlake with sean parker yeah exactly like that's who he has uh, next to him by the end of the movie and and that's not a yeah heroic tale where you'd want to be that person but it's it's so easy i think as a uh, young person to be like wow those offices look cool we know how the story ended goes public for a hundred billion dollars and let me disregard what's being obviously kind of written into this this screenplay and go for that uh that idea of freedom and it just it's, it's not that right as it pertains to Tilk, what would you say was kind of the the peak moment of that whole endeavor for you where you felt like you were really on top? And what was maybe the, the lowest moment you had? Well, um, I'll tell you a, a slight side story about uh, a little bit of a connection between Tilton and Facebook um, or the social network of the movie. So I, I built a startup before that, uh, before Tilt called uh, develop.org and it was focused on crowdfunding for nonprofits so fundraising for nonprofits and 2008 to 2010 and it was more of a nights and weekends project had to shut it down um, after just lack of enough response from customers and I remember just even that I was like fuck this is so so stressful I mean I've just told all of my friends and family about this thing for I think I worked on it for 19 months Told him it was, it was coming, it was launching, it was launching, it was coming, it was coming, it was, it's going to be awesome, it's going to be awesome, and then it happens, and then crickets, and then crickets, and then crickets, and then crickets, and then I, everyone that I'd ever built, you know, goodwill or relationship or reputation with, I'm like, oh, we're shutting the doors, and it was so embarrassing, and, and just felt like, ah, this is, I built all this goodwill by doing all of these things, right, now I got a big L, and, and it's a big loss, and just want to be useful and they're not going to think that I'm very useful. And the next thing that I try, I thought it was pretty, you know, existential. And then, uh, and then I saw the social network. So to your question, I saw that. And I was like, that's what it can be like. Mm-hmm. I was 24 maybe. And I had previously said, I'm never starting anything ever again. And then saw the social network. And that night I was like, all right, I'm back in, I'm back in. It was like wow. maybe eight months after I wound down, uh, develop.org. And I was like, I'm back in. I'm going to reuse the software. We built out this amazing code base and reuse the software for, for this other idea that I kind of have. Uh, fast forward about, I don't know, maybe a year and a half after that, we're, uh, we get through, go to Y Combinator, we get through Y Combinator, and uh, Sean Parker wants to meet with us. And he initially uh, wants to buy um, till at, we were like five people, and he wanted to purchase us as a, uh, as, um, and, and Tilt for our listeners is basically a mobile version of crowdfunding. So instead of a $50,000 documentary, you'd throw up a, a, a Tilt campaign for 1500 bucks for, you know, a tailgate on Saturday for the, the college football game or the uh, or $500 community fundraiser. And this it was basically us, GoFundMe and Kickstarter were kind of off to the races to try to win the space. And we thought we had something unique with a mobile kind of Twitter-esque version of crowdfunding. And, and Sean Parker thought it was somewhat interesting as well. And he um, approached us originally to, to buy us a five people and, and then we'd build it together and he'd be basically, um, you know, we'd sell the equity stake, but he would, he would run it, which is really super uh, flattering. Um, but we turned down and then three months later, he's like, all right, I want to invest um, and uh, come see me in New York and we'll talk about how we uh, build Tilt Out to be uh, the Facebook of money. Go to New York. 
in a sushi restaurant. I was going to ask, was this in, in a York. sushi restaurant yes. too? Let me mention that. must uh, be the move. Let me, yeah, exactly. This is so surreal. I've probably told this story 10 times and every time I'm like, I cannot believe that that actually happened. Wow. So um, we're in a sushi restaurant and Tilt at that time was called Crowd Tilt. Sitting down, him and his investment manager, uh, Michael, and I have like a backpack next to me. I'm like, what are we doing? We're at Nobu. Um and really nice sushi restaurant and he's getting like just the sean parker special because i think at this point yeah he's probably a billionaire at this point and they're just like bringing all of like just the nice there's no menus there's no ordering they're just bringing it all and I, it was almost as if like just the room was like spinning i'm like this is just so crazy i'm gonna you're like i'm in the movie right now this and, is crazy and yeah in new york with sean parker and i swear to you i'm not making this up at all he's he looks at me and goes have you ever thought about dropping the crowd and just going going by tilt oh my gosh and like i was dropped like, the the in yeah, facebook exactly and so yeah. uh just like the scene from the movie and wow for listeners that might not know the scene if you watch the movie it is exactly like the scene in the movie and i was like what the hell is happening i was yeah 24 25 i was like what the hell is happening right now that's crazy that is <laughs> and, a uh, so, story. so that was very uh yeah it was that was probably the most surreal moment but to your question alex I'd say out of five years of building the company, it was probably only four months in the entire five years where I was like, hey, we're ahead of the eight ball. For the other four years and eight months, it was every night, every morning. I mean, it's, I, I relive it in my mind. I just feel so bad for all of my friends, for, uh, for my wife, for you know, my family. I was just always felt like we were behind the eight ball every day. And, I, and it's something that I think is, poorly understood about entrepreneurship is the human mind and the human body can go through pretty intense stress for two months, four mm. months, five months. It's not built. I mean, it's, you know, you wouldn't have um, in nature or in civilization 8,000 years ago, you just, you wouldn't have three years, four years, five years. I mean, that you'd have a famine every 60 years or something, but nothing about our biology is built for three, four, five years of intense stress. Mm -hmm. And I did not appreciate that back then. Um, just because you think like, oh, well, I mean, this isn't warfare. This isn't, uh, I'm not, you know, my life isn't on the line. But psychologically, you really do feel like, uh, you know, mentally your life is on the line. And for any entrepreneur out there, they, uh, any non-entrepreneurs, I think they kind of scoff at that. Any entrepreneur is like, yes, that is exact. It is psychologically, I feel like, my survival is on the line. And it's tough because so much of your identity is wrapped up in the company, the success of the company or the challenges of the company. You're attached to certain goals or outcomes and you have people, whether it's investors, advisors, employees, right? That want to achieve a certain thing. And, and you feel probably solely responsible for at least guiding the ship in that direction. Hugely responsible. Yeah, yeah. You, feel, you feel like you're... you're the, you are in the driver's seat and yes the engine can still break down the car can still uh you know veer off the road or or you know the the road itself can can crumble before you but you're still the driver you still have the most control and you know that i think in in your head you 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 it's it's very clear that you have the most control maybe you're 30 percent of the equation but that's by far you know the most control and i think in my head what was so tough is i felt like i you know was 90%, 100%, the things that I do or don't do. And that was really, really tough. And I think it's just, I mean, I only understood this afterwards, but my biophysiology was so 
wrecked. Like my cortisol uh, stress hormone was just had been elevated for five straight years. And that's what I mean when I say like our bodies are just not built yeah. for five years of stress. I mean, it's really tough to have three, four months of stress, but five years is it's really tough. And I think uh, we don't have much of a societal appreciation for uh, for how hard it is to to create. And yeah, Kyle, you mentioned just goals or this, this this future that you create or you get attached to that's the self-sabotage that i yeah. think we we don't even realize we sign up for um when we set some audacious crazy goal and tie it to a date mm. and then you miss it and then you miss the next one and then, and then you miss the next one you're basically just like tying yourself on the train tracks running over yourself tying it again running over yourself you are the one tying yourself to the train tracks and uh setting up that situation that that uh, you know you have that elevated cortisol or that sleepless night because you you slip right into it of like oh yeah it sounded so good when we said that big audacious goal mm-hmm. and everyone like cheered and everyone felt like let's go and do it and uh, and yeah you didn't realize what you signed up for when you uh, raise expectations to the point where you feel like oh shit now we're behind the eight ball for seventeen months in a row. Going back to kind of the thread on honesty from the beginning, and I've worked in startups for the last 10 years, so kind of similar time frame. As an employee on the employee side, it's always interesting because you always sort of in your gut have a sense of how things are going. You don't have perfect information. And look, there's things that the executive team or, or the leaders of the company may know that you don't know. But in general, you have a sense of things are going well or things are maybe not going as well. And what I've always experienced on the employee side is that when there is that level of honesty about this is the challenge. An example could be we've been pedal to the metal on growth, but we really need to shift focus to unit economics. We just got to get our house in order so that we can build a durable business. I've always found that whenever the founder is very honest, going back to the honesty thing, again, the, the help, the empathy from employees starts to arrive in a, in a pretty magical way. And even though I, I can imagine, and I've been a founder of a couple small projects with a couple employees, but you're, you're worried about the employees, like, oh, their livelihoods, you know, attached up in, in, in this thing that I'm leading, but actually they're probably very open to wanting to hear the truth, good, bad, or ugly, and actually adjust their mindset and their expectations and kind of rally around whatever the situation may be, because people I think are so hungry for that honesty and they don't get it in the world that when they do get it, even when it's bad, there's something so oddly refreshing. refreshing about it. I don't know if you could talk a little bit more about that, but I've I've certainly experienced that in a in a couple of different companies. In, yeah, in certain I, moments that have gotten tough. Yeah, it's it is. Uh, I love that about Brian Chesky at Airbnbs. He's just so honest about uh, about and and continually uh, was just even ten years in of Airbnb being. Uh, who knows what what the valuation is, but certainly. Uh, tens of billions of dollars uh, in the in, in terms of uh, being financially successful and just was so honest all the time about what wasn't going well mm-hmm. and the things that he was worried about and and that does elicit just the right it's like okay I can build my my house upon rock mm-hmm. here like this is like this is real and and I think we I know that I would that struggle to be vulnerable um, I think it goes back to just our preconceived notions of what is strong or what is yeah. cool. Like you, you don't want to be the person like talking about how you are uh, ill-equipped for this this challenge ahead is not 
that that would not make you cool in your in your group of friends that would not make you seem strong on you know the basketball team that you play on and and these nor would that make for a very compelling uh narrative arc in the bullshit stories that we are told talk about like the the hero individual story that's you know we're told these stories um that just now i feel like i i feel like i think this more and more every month that these stories are just total total bullshit like behind my podcast a big shout out to uh sam megan ja they all help with this with a podcast that i'm the host but it's really them thinking about things constantly um to to grow it to to make it better with tilt it was a company of 70 people 100 people at our height my co-founder caleb was like he was the rock that i could really build the company uh on it is you know airbnb is five thousand people strong and yet it just gets reduced down to that guy who is the quote-unquote founder or ceo and it's just i mean it's uh it just never is the reality of the story but what it does is those stories tell you it's an individual and those stories also tell you it's like the greco story of achilles like it's not him being like guys i don't think i can do this i need y'all's help bad it's like let me go save the day and i'm gonna go be uh the hero yeah you know that saves this this situation and that's really uh just so far from the truth and really dangerous to do in a team setting. And I just found myself in my twenties just doing it and, and doing it over and over again. I'm like, let me go try to save the day yeah. uh, or thinking I need to rather than, yeah, to your point, yeah. just saying, Hey, we're, we all got to step it up. And, and, and this is where I failed. This is where, you know, I'm, uh, I, I yeah. am not getting it done. I think to some extent, I think that's sort of what you do in your twenties. You were in a very extreme situation in a high pressure role in your twenties. But I think uh, I can speak personally for myself. I think in my 20s, and, and I tried to start a company coming out of college at Berkeley, and I was trying to self-fund and just be the hero. And we rented an office and hired a couple employees. And it was just, it was all about putting it on my own shoulders, and you just can't do that. And talk about building your house in the sand, that's a very quick way to do it when you're literally relying on your own human strength to do everything. And it's just, it's just not scalable. It's not healthy. It's not possible. It's not how we were designed. We're social creatures. We're spiritual beings, right? And so uh, that's something that I didn't get at all in my 20s that now on the other side of it in my 30s, I have uh, a much deeper appreciation for. And it's been game changing to kind of have that journey, but it's so good to be on the other side of it. I would not want to relive uh, any of my early 20s at all. It totally. It's, it is, yeah, I, I am so thankful for, uh, the wisdom that comes from just foolishly doing things the wrong way over and over again. Um, and, and hopefully listeners listening can uh, just, you know, circumvent that uh, altogether because it's, and hopefully we collectively in the way that we talk about entrepreneurship really move past the idea that it is these individuals that are superhero. I mean, it's like, it's just the, those are the narrative arcs sure. that we and uh, they're simpler to tell, years. right? They're they're much more simple, it's, and it's, you can have heroes and villains. No, and, I honestly think that that is the reason that yeah. they because you can't say, "Hey, look, it isn't Superman." Yeah, it's all five hundred thousand of us right. pulling together. You cannot tell that, and story. those stories don't spread. I mean, and no, we're, yeah. we're living in. I think uh, there was a great quote from Jeff Bezos about how social media is like a nuance destruction machine, and we're living inside of the nuance destruction machine, where all that nuance of how a company gets built, how a podcast gets created, just gets absolutely destroyed. And that's why it's so great that I don't think we are. We're actually living, at least right now, and yeah. what you're doing with the Paradox Podcast. 
we're living in the nuance machine, which is podcasting. That yeah. is why I love this medium so much because it it is it is a better medium than reading writing than than having to create you know visual uh a visual medium like video which is just so, such high costs of creation and and high costs of distribution it's just audio is so great and conversation is so great for nuance that's why it's probably the single biggest reason i love podcasts because it is just like so replete with nuance and you can actually spend five minutes to explain out a concept that then you put that in a I don't know. You put that in a to-do list to do as a blog post and never gets done or God forbid you try to condense a five minute thought into uh, a tweet. It's just damn near impossible. There was a podcast that I loved that spent a whole season looking at a Kanye West album, which was also one of my favorite albums. Actually, Kyle and I were roommates when it came out. My beautiful dark twisted fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's in this day and age of, you know, 30 second clips or five second clips. It was like, wow, these people are taking the time to dive into something, which maybe it's kind of silly, but I think it merits some real consideration, some real reflection. So I I absolutely share that. And it's like we went from this just extreme acceleration through technology. We had access to so much. Our attention span kind of contracted. We wanted everything at our fingertips. And it seems like maybe there's some pushback on that where it's like, well, wait a minute. I can't get everything from short sound bites. I'm not actually getting a full understanding. And I think podcasts are kind of the, the answer to that. Right. Yeah. The, uh, Naval Ravikant, who I love, I love Naval. And he tweeted out yesterday, the day before this thought that it's, you know, it's, um, it's essentially minimize everything. And, and, uh, and it's the job of the communicator to minimize everything. And, and yeah, just, like a, a phone call can be an email an email right. can be a text. A yeah, text can email be email or a podcast should be a snippet. Sure. And I actually don't agree with that. Um, I think, yes, that is more convenient, but what I love about podcasts and what I personally, so he, you know, he's the opposite of me. He does four minute, four minute <laughs> podcasts and I do, uh, I've done like a three hour one before and, and, and most are around two hours. And that's because I, I really love, um, I really love going deeper and deeper into someone's story. And it's, and it's, I don't think it's for everyone, but I don't agree with the snippet. I think snippets are great for collection. If you are trying to collect factoids and, uh, and little bits of information, then yeah, you want to be able to sift through things, find what you want, take it, put it in your pocket, collect it and accumulate. But I don't think that's, at least for me, I don't think that's what I want. I don't want to accumulate. I actually really want to go explore different worlds. And yeah, it's a difference between, um, I don't know, it's a difference between a, a blog post and Dostoevsky. Like, yeah. It's like, no, I actually really want to go deep into this world that uh that this person has created or this you know podcast conversation has created well that was the first naval ravikant reference on the podcast i'm amazed we got all the way to episode three since i'm such a a fan how come real quick what are are the things that you love about naval i I love him too but um i disagree with him on uncertain key things but he really is the probably the clearest thinker in technology i think there's a level of boldness and and uh, you might say courage to say some things that maybe 
are actually pretty unpopular in the Valley. Uh, and, and also just, I think he's a champion for saying what you think and it's okay if we disagree. Like you guys are obviously friends. Like it's not a big deal to disagree. And there's probably a world where Naval's four minute podcasts and your two hour nuanced discussions can coexist. Right. And uh, I think I started following him back in 2009, 2010. I think I heard him maybe on a couple podcasts and I just, uh, yeah, just like the way that he thinks. The word contrarian is like a joke at this point in Silicon Valley. It's thrown around so much. Someone had a really great, I didn't read the post, but someone had a great title to a blog post saying, I too am contrarian. It's kind of like <laughs> making fun of just the ridiculous lemming, like uh, uh, sometimes great. monoculture that we have in Silicon Valley. So I think he's right. been refreshing in that sense. And similar to the way that your podcast, I think, is again, cut through kind of this conventional narrative uh, around you know the optics of running a company and actually going below the line towards honesty, um, I think there's there's some commonalities there. But but speaking of Naval and speaking of angel investing, I did want to touch on angel investing briefly. We're kind of in this era of the operator angels with you know Uber going public and Airbnb is going to go public soon and and Slack went public. So it seems like you could literally throw a term sheet on Market Street and hit like five angel investors. Like there's a proliferation of capital, but probably a shortage of ideas to put that capital into. But you made your first angel investment. This is from your LinkedIn profile, so I'm assuming it's correct. Back in 2013, mm-hmm. so before it was quite as hot. That, that's you know six seven years ago. Walk us through what writing that first check was like, and and kind of what your first angel investment, what it was, and what the thought process was behind it. Well, talk about how you know stories are, are meaningless. It's uh, I'll tell you the story, but there's there's nothing to really to replicate. I so. We were in Y Combinator, and uh, Josh Reeves, the founder of uh, co-founder of Gusto, asked me to invest. And I was 24; I did not have any capital to invest. And well, I, I think I maybe had like twenty-four thousand dollars of savings. And um, and Y Combinator gives you 120k, so I was like, okay, I don't need to just keep, you know, shelling out savings for for uh, for Tilton, and. Um, and I really loved getting to know them during Y Combinator. I wrote them a twenty thousand dollar check, and and Gusto has uh, now gone on to uh, well over um, a two billion dollar valuation. <laughs> um, and it's I just got really lucky in that first, but that first check was just uh, me feeling like, all right, I'm decent at creating financial opportunities and, and situations. I'm basically putting everything I have into another friend's <laughs> company while I'm putting everything that I have into my own company. But yeah, it's so funny. I just, I didn't think I was angel investing. I didn't think I was becoming an, I just thought like, helping a friend. Yes. Helping a friend. And, and I think this is going to be and a diversifying really a little bit on some level, a, a little bit. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but uh, well, actually, I think I actually thought like, Oh shit, I'm like putting everything into startups. I don't know if this is, is, is I'm overexposed on right, startups exactly. right now. <laughs> so I, I, uh, probably felt like it wasn't diversification, but I definitely um, uh, look back and I feel like that was just lucky and it was the right singular moment type of uh, situation and or type of decision where I was like, okay, really smart founders. And you're investing they, in the person at that point anyway. I got and to so knew, you had know really them good, really well. Yeah. Going through Y Combinator yeah. helps, you know, I don't know, acclimate to just what 200 different types of founders were like. And so I could see uh, the differentiation of of him and tomer and, mm-hmm. and eddie uh, as founders and uh and so i wrote that that check and then uh and then i think it's like i don't know uh doing well in your first hand of blackjack you're like all right let me sit at the table a little while and uh and just kept doing it 
And so speaking of continuing to do it, how did you make the transition more recently from doing this on the side as you were building your company to being now a full-time angel investor? So um, it was you know, it was very linear for me. It was I built it tilt really failed in, in, in our attempt to to build that to be the the Sean Parker's where it's a Facebook of money, a social network on money. It's uh, we ended up selling. So uh, Alex, the word acquisition. Yeah, it's uh, it seems like it's just this uh, simple word. Such a painful experience. The last 18 months of Tilt's life was just trying everything we could for a revenue model around this. We had this great viral growth and uh, meaning that it was just growing year over year and triple digits, what you'd kill for as a startup founder. But similar to Venmo, just everything we were trying in 2015 and 2016 of different fee structures, uh, going after business clients, uh, building out a uh, enterprise product, um, building out premium features. They just would not they would not stick for a decent revenue model, and and so we ultimately had to to sell to Airbnb, and um, and so we sold, and and basically it was just fire sale. It was like ninety five percent of our value uh, was was cut down in Airbnb. Um, you know, I, I guess from beginning to end, I would have been happy with it, but we flew really close to the sun. We got we got really close to building something really special, um, and uh, and had a really hefty valuation high profile, all these things that you just talk about self-sabotage. You just don't, I wouldn't come within 10 miles of doing again uh, in mm. my next uh, company, but made all of these mistakes, went through this painful process. And I was like, I just want to help prevent this from happening to other people as much as possible. And at that point, maybe I'd invested in 13 or 14 companies. And, and so I was like, all right, not only do I love guiding other young founders, but um, I'm going to do this more as uh, uh, as I have a little bit more free time and in, in, um, being an executive at Airbnb rather than the founder. So did a little bit more, loved it, honestly felt like it was God's work. Like I was like, this is uh, perhaps the, the highest leverage thing I can be doing is helping other founders and thought I was going to be an executive coach. Um, so the reason I started the podcast was, was also just trying to understand founder psychology or creator psychology, a concept that, that, um, you know, we have sports psychology, but mm -hmm. we, we don't have business psychology. And, and, um, and I was, and I wondered over the last few years why we don't study the psychology of creation, what is normal, why so many founders, myself included, um, you guys probably the same with this podcast. You just have to piecemeal like, oh no, this is normal, right? Oh yeah, I think someone mentioned something like this and it's this psychology or this feeling. Right. It's normal. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, in these these internal uh conversations, just wanted to externalize them with podcast and and um and enjoy doing that in one on one settings with with coaching. So thought that I was going to be executive coach. And then, um, I thought, well, I, you know, I've invested, uh, you know, to this point done decently well, actually financially, I could do that full time yeah. and use it as a chance just to advise other, other founders and, and then probably start something on my own again. It's so interesting because you went through this very intense experience. You said there were maybe four months of building tilt that felt like you were kind of on top of the world and the rest was kind of being behind the eight ball and being super stressed out. And it's so interesting because on the other side of it, on this side of that experience, people sometimes talk about like you go through something and it's not really about you, it's the people that you're gonna help through that experience on the other side. And I think that being able to 
sit down with founders, have honest and real conversations, maybe invest, maybe intro them to other investors, but really get real with them about founder psychology, about the challenges of building a company. You would not be in a position to do that had you not gone through that experience. That experience enabled you to do that. Do you, do you kind of have that perspective now that, wow, it actually has set me on this whole other path to helping other founders that I would not have been on had I not gone through that trial? Well, uh, for sure. I never, I never went through it thinking, I wish I could avoid this. Just to be clear, I went through it and was like, this is, I mean, there was, there was a moment where I was just breaking down in tears in the bathroom of my wife's uh, parents' house and, and just breaking down in tears, couldn't stand up and, and just was definitely thinking, what the hell is happening? This is how will I get through this? But the whole time I, I was never thinking, I wish I wasn't in this position. And, and I think it's, um, I just was, I had already been through really tough things in life uh, early on that I, I had already somehow, um, somehow acquired the mindset of this, you know, things happen for you, not to you. And so I was going through it. My wife and I talk about this to this day when there's, you know, challenges. And we were talking about this an hour ago. Uh, you can choose to to think about these things as as not that you chose them to happen, but you could always sit there and imagine, what if I chose this? Hmm. What what would be the blessing within this to where I would choose this? And many of us choose to go to the gym and put your muscles through intense stress voluntarily uh, you know on purpose so why not put your spirit through through stress so that uh you could build up uh, some muscle there as well so that was part one of our conversation with james bashara and we had such an in-depth discussion that we decided to break it up into two episodes coming soon on part two we dive deeper into this notion that mental health is wealth you know that phrase health is wealth i think you and i or you know alex we could all be healthy but have a mental state of depression and that's not wealth. And so I don't think even health is wealth. I think you could actually be a, I have a paraplegic neighbor, one of the happiest people I know. We also talked about James's passion for encouraging more people in society to create and how creation is something deep in our DNA as humans. Probably the, the biggest ailment to our ability to solve things is that we're not a participatory culture. You go home, you order food in, you watch four hours of, of TV a day of other people participating in life. If you were to film that person day to day, no one would watch it because they're not participating in anything. That's a wrap for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. If you'd like to connect, you can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Tibbetts and at Mr. Alex Kahn. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes to spread the word. And until next time, take care of yourself.